a Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. My dad said that he'd never seen nothing like it in his life, the way it rained. I mean, he said he just saw it where the water was coming down. It just looked like a fall, you know, and the water was pouring over. Everything, and that was the first one was ever at in her life, and that was something. But the next day, there wasn't nothing left. It was the whole right ran nine yards off. It's triumph over tragedy, spirit over poverty, and above all, a resolute faith that keeps the people in the heart of Appalachia together. Through loss comes an inevitable consolidation of people that know what struggle, real struggle is. Such pain from loss may very well be the reason that some say the spirits of those lost in one of the nation's worst floods that took place July 4th and 5th and severely affected Breathitt, Lewis, and parts of Rowan counties with 79 lives lost, are still wandering this world. It's said by many that there's a place in Breathitt County that one can go and will leave just as quickly. You feel like you're being watched and can still hear the screams of the victims, especially the children. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 6 frozen. I will be the last to fall. I won't shed a tear for them to see. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Long. A special thank you for our new Patreon supporters, J.D. Maggard and Stephanie Martinez. All tiers of the Mountain Mysteries Patreon supporters get early access to all episodes. You could have heard this three or four days ago. So log on to Patreon right now or click our flow page link and discover how you can support the Mountain Mysteries. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share. Well, we made it out to the car. We had a hedge fence. And we made it out to the car, and of course the water was over the top of the seats by that time. Like echoes through time, some memories are too hard to let go, too painful. It was, and still is, considered to be one of the worst floods in this nation's history. If life is hard in these mountains now, then it was nearly impossible in 1939 when infrastructure 
was much less advanced than it is today. Narrow, winding roads were the way that most got around back then. There were no four-lane highways, and it wasn't that uncommon to see horses making their way through the region that many called home in these mountains. It was July 4th, 1939, and the nation was wrapping up its 163rd birthday party, and that party would come to an end in a way that would bring years of suffering, nightmares, and torment, especially to the people of the small Kentucky communities of Breathitt and Rowan counties. Oh, but there was more to come, more heartache, more tragedy. Now, uh, I'll tell you, uh, all my life, I've been the kind of person that the, the, the fiercer a storm, the harder I sleep, the sounder I sleep. And anyway, the children had, uh, had got disoriented with the storm, you know, coming up, and she had put them both at the foot of our bed. Uh, and uh, I don't know what woke me. I have no idea. I'll never know, I guess. But anyway, I woke, and I thought I heard water. Well, of course, I started turning on the light, and there wasn't any. And uh, I put my foot out, and it went out in water. So I, I jumped out of bed, and I grabbed my wife and shook her awake. They, she was, her and the kids were still sound asleep. And uh, uh, I woke her, and I said, Honey, get up quick. There's water in the house. She said, What are you talking about? I said, Honey, there's water in the house. <laughs> Well, of course, she jumped out of bed. Well, she had a robe hanging on. It was a four-poster bed. She had a robe hanging on the bed. That was all she had. And my pants were just about to get away from me. Uh, when we were both raised up out of bed, the mattress phrase and floated with the kids. It was coming in that fast. That was George Walter Atkins, who lived in Rowan County at the time the cloud burst happened. The National Weather Service said that between two and a half and nine inches of rain fell in that short period of time, depending upon where you lived, a span of only about four hours. Now, I've heard before that some people are gifted. They seem to know things before others, and maybe at times we should listen to them. The paranormal isn't all about ghosts, creatures, and UFOs, oh no. The paranormal may be defined as denoting events or phenomena such as telekinesis or clairvoyance that are beyond the scope of normal scientific understanding. Well, if that is indeed the case, then it's probably a good thing that Christine Barker's mother finally broke down and gave into a tantrum her daughter Christine, who was only seven years young at the time, through when she knew they couldn't stay where they had planned that night. That was just a bad idea. And it was getting, we stayed up later, had no idea what time it was, but we came uh, down to where we were supposed to uh, spend the night, which was our home. And when we came to the front door, for some reason, I started getting nervous. I didn't want to go in. And it was thundering and lightning and the, the sky was really lit up bright. And uh, I thought that was kind of exciting. I'd never been afraid of storms, and I wasn't afraid of the thunder and lightning. I, I always seemed like it was kind of exciting or something. I kept saying, Mom, 
I don't want to go in. Let's go up to Mary's and stay all night. Mary was my mother's uh, first cousin that owned the restaurant. And my mother said, no, since she's in bed asleep and we're certainly not going to wake her up. Now, come on in. And I said, please, let's don't, let's don't stay here tonight. Please don't. And my mother said, yes, we're going to stay here. Now, come on. Come on in this house. And um, so then I would say, please, please. And I would just begged and pleaded, but she kept saying, no. She was getting aggravated at that time. You shut up. <laughs> Get in here. We're going to stay here. And so she got me by the arm to make me go in. And now I knew that I had better not throw tantrums because my mother was pretty strict. When she said no, she meant no. And if you threw a, a tantrum, you were going to get spanked. That is definite. So, knowing all of that, I still knew I wasn't going to go inside. And so, very much against my nature, and I was a seven-year-old child, I decided that I would get a hold of the door facings and I wouldn't let her take me in. And she was about to win on that, and I laid down on the sidewalk, and I put a foot on each side of the door, and <laughs> she could not get me in. And I think she kind of uh, spanked me a little bit a couple times, but I still wouldn't go in. And uh, so she was about to win and make me go in, and I started just screaming and crying. I really threw a tantrum. I would not go in that building. And I had no reason... It was just that I became very nervous or something, and I, I will never know why I didn't want to go in. So, another thing that was very unusual is my mother never gave in to a tantrum. Never. But she gave in to me. And she said, okay, we'll go up to Mary's, which was up on Main Street. She lived just over the blue, it was a blue bonnet motel, and it was over... Uh, the uh, bus station up over the bus station it was an upstairs up there and she lived in an apartment which later my mother moved in with her my mother and me but uh, we went to Mary's and we woke her up and my mother said I'm sorry to wake you up like this but I don't know what's got into Christine I can't get her to go in and, and uh, she is throwing some kind of a fit you know crying and everything and uh, we did go to bed and uh, the horrible horrible rain came you know and we knew there was something going on but now uh, I slipped through the flood part but had we, when we uh, waded the water the next uh, day down on First Street to go to our home, to our apartment where we lived, uh, there were people standing in front of where we lived at the front door. And uh, they were saying, you know, I wonder where their bodies are. I know they washed away. There was a skylight that was in the bedroom of that apartment. And the the uh, water came up and it washed furniture, the mattress and so on, out through the skylight. So you can imagine what would have happened had we been in there asleep. We would have been dead.
At the beginning of this episode, you heard from Stanley Talby. In an interview conducted by William E. Ellis in May of 1990 for the Oral History of Eastern Kentucky University, and how he said his father had commented that he'd never seen anything like this. I don't know that I can even imagine what was witnessed on Frozen Creek that night. Or should I say in the earliest morning hours of July 5th, 1939, as a new day's promises were washed away, so lives would be as well. These people knew each other, helped one another as much as they could. Some were considered family. Some actually were family. Stanley was only 14 at the time the skies opened and water poured out in biblical amounts. But even at the time of that interview, some 50 years after the fact, his memory was still as clear as it could be. We lived right down the road here. Uh, my dad, he worked for the state, or WPA or whatever. He's a night watchman. It, uh, me and my sister bent the natural bridge the fourth. We'd come back late in the, late in the afternoon, and uh, it started lightning that night, and it's just like daylight. Had uh, long towards morning, why, when the creeks begin to come up, it rained for about, I think, about four hours. As hard as I, well, I, I was asleep, but my dad said it rained four hours that you couldn't even see how to walk. Was he up all that time? Yeah, he was a, he was a night watching just a little ways from the house. This creek here. This is Negro Branch. Negro Branch. It runs into Maine Frozen down here. How far is it? That's uh, about a mile and down to it. There's an old fellow by the name of George Lane Banks. Lived back up the other creek for about uh, about three miles. He lived by himself and he was he was grounded. And he washed down about three mile and he was found in a pasture field the next day on down the road there about another couple three mile there's a family of the manses the son was high sailed and he was probably about 15 and a sister named annie now those two was drowned and their niece she was a man's but uh I always called her Tootsie. She was just a little small child. And then their stepfather, Herman Gillum, was there. And another daughter, Laurie Manns. And uh, this boy, he when he woke and seen all this water, why well, he... He just walked out to the porch and jumped in. He tried to swim out and couldn't. And uh, don't know what happened to Annie and, and the little girl, how they, uh, what took place during this time, but anyway, they drowned it. And Herman and Laurie, they stayed with the house, and there's a house built in the, the old chimney right in the center of the house. And so the chimney come down, the house went up, and then it fell down the 
chimney did, and they went out through the roof. The water picked the house up? Yeah, and they uh, got on the roof, and uh, they floated for about, uh, I guess, about a mile and a half. And the house kind of come into where the water current went over next to, to the hill, or anyway, a green spot. And Herman, he got Larry by the hand, and when, when the house went over close enough, they raised and jumped. Mm. That was uh, three, four people here on this creek that was drowned. And uh, there was many more on down, further on down the road down here about around Bangley. There's a lot of people around here. You ever see the water? Oh, yeah. What time did you wake up? Well, I woke up in the morning. It was daylight on the fifth morning. It was uh, after daylight, but uh, all you could see was water. Out of each tragedy, heroes are known to come to life. It isn't the absence of fear that defines a hero, not at all, but rather what one does in the face of that fear that would paralyze so many others in the challenge of confronting insurmountable odds and even death. 81-year-old Gilly Ann Prater lived with her daughter, Lana Tolson, and son, Amos Malone. When the flood came, it was clear that their only hope was to leave the house before it was washed away. Gilly Ann insisted that she was too old to fight the current and that Amos must save his own life and not worry about her. Unwilling to leave her, but knowing that she was correct. Finally, he jumped into the water and was washed down the creek into safety. Gilly Ann lit a lantern and held it up so that he could see where he was going, and he made it. Later, he said that his last glimpse of his mother was of her holding a lantern in the air as the muddy water swirled about her. Seconds later, the house, his sister, and mother were swept away. Mrs. Prater's body was found at lock number 13 near Beattyville. She and Lana lie buried together at the Puckett Cemetery in Van Cleve. Earl Howard's house was up on the hillside. Earl and his wife had two boys, Ray and Forrest, and a newborn baby girl. One of Earl's neighbors went to his house and told him that the creek was rising and he should get out. Earl said, oh, it'll never get this far, and went back to bed. At 3.30 a.m. that morning, the house was swept away. Only Ray, the eldest son, survived. The next morning, Ray was found sitting on top of a big rock, crying. Ray said that the last time he saw his father, his arms were outstretched as far as he could, holding his baby girl's head above water. A one-room house was tearing down the stream with a little boy on the rooftop crying out for help, but no one had any way to get to him. An elderly lady at the scene fell to her knees and began to pray. The house then hit a tree and stopped just long enough for the boy to climb to safety on a tree limb. Mary Bradley with her children and sister Verna lived just across the road from the river. The water got up so high in their house that they had to climb on top of the roof. Several men climbed the hill behind the house with ropes and got them off the roof and to safety. Walter Rose operated a big general store at Willhurst. Walter managed to swim to safety, but his wife Evelyn and daughter Ola Ruth vanished in the churning murky water. All he had and everything he cared about was swept away in seconds. Kurt Childers lived in Jackson. 
Kurt didn't know that his wife had given permission for their 14-year-old daughter, Irene, to spend the night with her cousin, who lived on Frozen. Irene Childers, who was 14 at the time, and her cousin Irene Spicer, who was 12, had spent the July 4th holiday visiting Natural Bridge at Slade, Kentucky, and now the two girls were spending the night together. The Spicer family lived on the J.C. Hurst farm. A creek ran behind the house, and Frozen Creek ran in front of the house. They never had a chance. The next day, 14-year-old Woodrow Spicer stood at the coffins of his father, Richard, mother, Esther, sisters, Arlene, Irene, and Roxy, Roxy's baby, and little eight-year-old brother, Sherman. Woodrow remembered the last words he heard his father speak. They were, Lord, be with us. For a brief moment in time over in Jackson, Kurt Childers and his wife didn't know there had been a flood until someone hauled their daughter's body home in the back of a pickup truck. Blanche Perry, a 22-year-old college student, had returned to the Kentucky Bible School at Van Cleve only the day before to spend the summer completing missionary work. The following is her account of that terrible night. There were five of us girls in the dormitory. Mildred Drake, Lorraine Hartley, Christine Hallman, Elsie Booth, and I. We were awakened by a crashing of timbers, and we rushed into the hall. There was a deafening roar, and the gas lights flickered and then went out. The building lurched and was swept off its foundation. The water rose 20 feet in five minutes. The building shook violently. The windows crashed, and the ceiling began dropping at our feet. Pictures fell off the walls. Dishes tumbled across the floor, while trunks, pianos, chairs, and girls were lashed from one side of the hall to the other. The floor opened, and furniture began dropping through. The water kept rising. We rushed to the attic, and behind us, the steps disappeared immediately. The water was soon knee-deep in the attic. In less than ten minutes, we had floated a mile or more. The lightning flashed and lit up the attic. Elsie Booth stood by the window crying. She said, if we really belong to God and he loves us, why didn't we have any warning? I said, Elsie, we've trusted God to save us and to take us through school. Can't you trust him now? Heaven was all over her face as she smiled through the tears and cried. Of course I can trust him. I don't know why I hadn't thought of this before. In a few minutes, we will all be with Jesus. By this time, the building was too dangerous to remain in any longer, and we decided to jump out. Elsie went first. I saw her swim a few feet in that awful current, and then she went down. Christine Hallman sat in the window. I can still see her big blue eyes, and that face as white as snow. Are you going? I asked. I can swim, but not in that current, she replied. If you'll move back, I'll go, I tell her. We only have a few seconds left. She moved back, and I jumped into the swirling, muddy water. Christine followed right behind me. 
Since I could not swim, I expected to be with Jesus very soon. I knew the current was too strong for me, and there was no use fighting it. I gave myself to the current, which sent me to the bottom. I held my breath, relaxed, came to the top, caught my breath, and then went down again. I repeated this process for two or three miles. Finally, I crawled onto a very small piece of building and lay there exhausted. My 10-mile journey ended when I picked up a 2 by 4 and pushed away the trunks, mattresses, chairs, and boards and drifted toward the bank. I caught hold of a willow limb and pulled myself out. Daylight dawned and it was still raining. I followed a path which led me to a house. A mother and several children stared at me with horror. I explained as best I could what had happened. Then the mother asked, Ain't ye scared to death? I said, No, I'm a Christian, and I was ready to go. She gave me some dry clothes, and I walked barefoot two miles across the hill, where I was met by the Mount Carmel workers and taken to the high school. The remains of Christine Holman were found 15 miles away. The body of Elsie Booth was recovered three days later about 50 miles downstream. Richard Rudd and his neighbors labored for weeks recovering bodies. A makeshift morgue was set up in the Blanton Van Cleve area. One neighbor, 74-year-old George Banks, was found dead lying on a mattress in an open field. Roscoe Riley was one of the many men who worked around the clock making coffins. Steady hands, guided by a faithful heart and tear-stained eyes, as the women sewed shrouds. feet. That's about the size of a two-story building. That's how tall that the wall of water was that swept through the small area known as Frozen Creek in Breathitt County. It took along with it 44 houses, over 60 barns, outbuildings, and livestock, all in a muddy torrent that also took the lives of 54 men, women, and children Oh, there was no discrimination and no hesitation. But the question remains, is Frozen Creek haunted by the spirits of those who lost their lives that tragic morning of July 5th, 1939? Many say that the residents had been warned of a tornado, not a flood. And where do people seek shelter during a tornado? Oh, well, that's in the worst possible place to be during a flash flood. The internet, of course, usually runs rampant with rumors of hauntings, creaks and moans, and stories that scare kids at the sides of campfires. But oddly enough, there wasn't too much that I was able to find on the spirits of Frozen Creek. Eh, Maybe it's because this alleged haunting hotspot is overshadowed by places like Waverly Hills. Or maybe it's because that those who have passed on have indeed 
passed on to a better place than what this life offers. Then again, just because there's not a lot to find doesn't mean that there's nothing to find. It was posted on YouTube around 2009 or 2010. A group of amateur, quote, ghost hunters, end quote, posted a video to the channel in which something can clearly be seen in a doorway, and they picked up some fascinating audio. If you listen carefully, you'll hear something say, go downstairs. Now you can check it out for yourself because I've posted the link to that video in the episode notes. They openly admit that they heard nothing and saw nothing while they were there. Everything that they captured was caught on the camera and the camera's audio. So, is Frozen Creek in Bretha County haunted? Well, the school building that that took place in was torn down some 10 years ago. So as far as that goes, I'm not really sure if anyone could go out there and investigate anything. But, I can tell you it's compelling evidence. Or it's definitely something to think about. We'll leave that up to you. Whether it's haunted or not, there's one thing that's unmistakable. This was a true tragedy and remains as such to this day. Some ghost stories are based purely in fiction. They're campfire stories. Things to be told to scare kids or maybe even some adults. But this is as grounded in reality as it will ever get. 52 lives in Breathitt County alone were lost. People watched their families die and everything that they'd worked for their entire lives were all gone in an instant. I can't tell you if it's haunted or not, but I can say this. If it's not, then it missed one hell of a chance. And once again, in February of 2021, it was a near repeat. Bertha County was one of the hardest counties in southeastern Kentucky to be hit with yet more flooding. Thankfully, though, the life lost was not nearly as many. Details are still unconfirmed at this point, but from what I understand, one life was lost in the 2021 floods, but one life is one too many. So, our heartfelt condolences and respect to the family or families of all who were lost in the 2021 flood or the 1939 flood. Here's an invitation for you. Join us live on our Facebook page, The Mountain Mysteries, each Thursday at 8 p.m. as we discuss these and other cases, and we get a nice little chat going, too. And coming up May 8, 2021, if you're nearby, please stop by the Paintsville Lake. Shelter number four for the celebration of life for April Pennington 
and Timothy Stambo. They are the ones who got the Mountain Mysteries started. Please tell your friends about the podcast, The Mountain Mysteries. Word of mouth goes so far. And if you like it, please give us five stars and share. Until the next time on The Mountain Mysteries, I'm Chris Lone. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.